0: Tonight, for our 154th episode, we discuss the cult comedy classic The Big Lebowski from 1998, and we welcome back in our returning guest, the stand-up comedian and host of Midnight Facts for Insomniacs, Shane Rogers. Welcome back.
1: Thanks, you guys. Thanks so much for having me again. It was so much fun last time I had to come back.
0: Absolutely, and we love having you. So how has it been since you were on last?
1: Uh, things have been really good. Uh, it was fun. I've been trying to follow along as much as I can with uh, your podcast. I, I haven't had a lot of time to listen to podcasts or be on any lately. I've just been out and about doing a lot of shows and trying to keep our podcast up to date. So I've had a lot on my plate. But um, yeah, it's things have been really good. They're definitely uh, they're definitely staying busy, which which I always enjoy. Uh, but it's nice to have a second to breathe and sit down and talk about a fun movie.
0: So this is the 25th anniversary this year, and I think it might even be this week of The Big Lebowski as we're recording this. It might be coming out a week after the actual anniversary, but this was one that you previously selected, and it worked out just perfectly as far as our schedule goes. So what is your relationship to The Big Lebowski?
1: I think like a lot of people, uh, well, at least a lot of people of my generation, I did not see it when it was in the movie theater. I think most people uh, did not see it in the movie theater, regardless of any generation. It was not a huge hit in the theaters. I discovered it on video, probably at Blockbuster. And, uh, you know, there was some some buzz around it. I think, you know, it was the Coen brothers. So there was already sort of a built-in little cult following there. I remember kind of being a little perplexed by it the first time I watched it. I think I heard you guys chatting a little bit in the beginning about the fact that for most people, it's probably not a, an amazing first watch film. It kind of is something that you I think on the first watch, you you probably have, uh, you know, some hopefully some affection for it or at least some curiosity about it. And then it, it, it's just a film that for a lot of people makes you want to watch it again. And the more you watch it, sort of the more you just become wrapped up in all of the silliness and the, you know, absurdity. And uh, it just becomes part of your zeitgeist. I think it became part of the cultural zeitgeist. It becomes part of your individual zeitgeist. My friends and I quote it to each other all the time. Uh, We've quoted in our podcast, just thrown in, you know, random quotes. And it's just one of those movies that becomes a touchstone for everyone. It just, I don't know anyone, honestly, of my friend group, certainly. But I don't think I know anyone who hasn't seen... The Big Lebowski and, and knows at least a few quotes from it. So it's just, it's one of those films that has become ubiquitous. And uh, so it's cool. As soon as I saw it on the list that you sent me, I was like, of course, you know, there's no other choice.
0: I think I've come to this movie in a very roundabout fashion. I've heard it referred to a lot, and that there's been a big group of people that have such reverence for the movie. I know that we're going to throw around the term cult classic a lot during this podcast, but there really is a group of people that just, admire and love this movie in a way that I never really felt connected to because I think the first time I finally actually sat down and watched it was sometime this winter. And so again, I I think I referred to it before we actually started taping as not a great first watch movie, because I think you're focusing so much on the story. But the point of this movie is almost that there is no story. I mean, there is, there's a plot and there's A to B to C, but the point of the movie is almost its absurdity. And I think that is what gives it really its great rewatchness or rewatchability is the word we usually throw around. Dad, did you kind of find it that way? I think what ultimately, instead of focusing on the
2: story as much, is when you watch it the second time, you start picking up on, oh yeah, I know that guy, or I went to college with that guy, or that guy was a guy who used to hang around at the gas station that my dad would have a Coke at before, you know, he'd go home. And that's where you start picking up on this. These are all characters that you know. And it took me a long, well, about three or four days to pinpoint exactly who the dude was in my life. And it's my Uncle Phil. <laughs> My Uncle Phil was the dude without the moral code.
1: Hmm.
2: Wait, the dude has a moral code? Well, I guess he does. All right. Yes, he does. (laughs) He actually got upset when, you know, man, her life was in my hands. He has a moral code. My Uncle Phil basically did, he's he's long past, but he actually did some work for the mob was asked to burn down a pizzeria that wasn't paying paoli, had to get out of town. So we tried to borrow money from my dad so he could get out of town. I mean, and he was like that, he complete. I remember as a kid, him coming in, he's got like overalls on it. He goes, reaches in his pocket, he pulls out. He says, see this? It's pot. Don't smoke it. He puts it back in his pocket. Then <laughs> he reaches into another pocket, pulls out. He says, see these? These are Benny's. Don't take him. puts him back in his pocket. <laughs> I'm going. What the hell is this? And then I'm going. Yeah, that's my Uncle Phil. The only thing is, I would point out there were certain Walter esque qualities to him, where he would just on a dime go into some sort of like rant. And uh, but yes, yeah, my Uncle Phil.
1: Yeah, I agree. This is a this is a character driven movie. The plot is really secondary, and I don't even think I understood fully what had happened in it until the third or fourth viewing, just because like it doesn't matter. Right? Who cares, right? It's This is a movie about characters. And I don't have anyone in my life who is specific to one of those characters, but there are so many people I have who are a composite of those personality types. And I think that is really fascinating to me, is that everyone, you know, and I think we all have a little bit of the dude and a little bit of Walter and a little bit of, you know, because they're, they're such opposites, but they, they complement each other in this movie so well. So yeah, this is a character movie, 100%.
0: The closest character where I could base it off of somebody that is actually in my life is actually a Donnie character. I have a fairly quiet background type of friend who's got his opinions and he will occasionally ask questions, but he's just happy-go-lucky, and if you tell him to bug off, he's just going to let it rub off his back. I think that's the most likely, but I agree. Walter, while he feels incredibly authentic, it's because he's such a composite of all these other people that I have around me. Like my mm-hmm. grandfather.
1: Yeah, well, hopefully you don't treat your Donnie friend the way Walter uh, treats Donnie, but uh, but yeah. No,
0: I think most people actually appreciate the Donnie in my life uh, as, yeah. a, as opposed to it, but that's still a fun moment regardless. So as mentioned before, we are discussing The Big Lebowski. This was the sequel, I guess, of sorts, and I do think there is actually a tie-in at one point to the f- Extended Fargo universe, but part of the story of this movie is is that it is the direct follow up to their Oscar winning film Fargo from nineteen ninety six, directed and written by Joel Cohen, co written by Ethan Cohen, starring Jeff Bridges as Jeffrey the Dude Lebowski, John Goodman as Walter Sobchak, Julianne Moore as Maude Lebowski, Steve Buscemi as Donny Karabatsis, Dave Huddleston as Jeffrey the Big Lebowski. Philip Seymour Hoffman as Brandt, Tara Reed as Bunny Lebowski, John Turturro as Jesus Quintana, Sam Elliott as The Stranger, David Thewlis as Knox Harrington, Ben Gazzara as Jackie Treehorn, Peter Stormare as Yuli Kunkel slash Carl Hungus, Torsten Vogues as Franz, and Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers as Kiefer. Recognition for this movie? After originally opening at the 1998 Sundance Film Festival, The Big Lebowski was released on March 6, 1998. It would gross a rough total of $46 million against a budget of $15 million. The Big Lebowski received mixed reviews at the time of its release. However, over time, reviews have become largely positive, and the film has become a cult favorite. Noted for its eccentric characters, comedic dream sequences, idiosyncratic dialogue, and eclectic soundtrack. Due to its cult status, ardent fans of the film call themselves Achievers, and an annual festival, Lebowski Fest, began in Louisville, Kentucky in 2002, with 150 fans showing up and has since expanded to several other cities. The festival's main event each year is a night of unlimited bowling with various contests, including costume trivia, hardest and farthest traveled contests. Held over a weekend, events typically include a pre-Fest party with bands the night before the bowling event, as well as a day-long outdoor party with bands, vendor booths, and games. Various celebrities from the film have attended some of the events, including Jeff Bridges, who attended the Los Angeles event, and the British equivalent, inspired by Lebowski Fest, is known as the Dude Abides and is held annually in London. Dudism, a religion devoted largely to spreading the philosophy and lifestyle of the film's main character, was founded in 2005. Also known as the Church of the Latter-day Dude, a name parody for The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the organization has ordained over 220,000 Dudist priests all over the world via its website. I should look into that. Entertainment Weekly ranked it 8th on their Funniest Movies of the Past 25 Years list, The film was also ranked number 34 on their list of top 50 cult films and ranked number 15 on the magazine's The Cult 25, The Essential Left Field Movie Hits Since 1983 list. In addition, the magazine also ranked The Dude number 14 in their 100 Greatest Characters of the Last 20 Years poll. Empire Magazine ranked Walter Sobchak number 49 and The Dude number 7 in their 100 Greatest Movie Characters poll. Roger Ebert added The Big Lebowski to his list of great movies in March 2010. In 2014, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. In 2020, a spin-off titled The Jesus Rolls, with John Turturro reprising his role and also serving as writer and director, was released, and The Big Lebowski currently holds a 79% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 71 score on Metacritic, and a 4.1 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So we've touched on it a little bit already as to kind of the basic background of the movie. This was a movie that had a very tepid release at the time. So it begs the question, why does The Big Lebowski seem to have endured enough to have two spider species named after the title character, multiple film festivals for just this movie, and an entire religion spawned by the film? How do we explain that? That's
1: a good question. I mean, you know, I, I do love this movie, and it's even hard for me to explain why I love it. I think that it is just a movie that hit at the right time. I think, you know, there is a certain nostalgia of how the movie became part of popular culture at a time when I was in college. All my friends were into it. We all drank white Russians. You know, we'd go out and say another Caucasian, Gary and the bartender would know what you were talking about. I mean, it just, it became such a phenomenon underground that it it was huge, but it still felt small. It still felt like it was just your friend group that was into it, even though it was this big phenomenon. And so there's something really nostalgic and warm and fuzzy about watching it. I watched it two days ago for this, and, you know, I hadn't seen it in years, and it just, it was so much fun to rewatch it. I mean, I honestly was, I'm gonna watch it again in another few months, just because, it's just one of those warm blankets that you put on, and it brings you back to that time in your life. And it's it's a fun group of characters to hang out with. It just feels very safe and enjoyable. There's nothing in the movie that's particularly challenging. It's not trying. It's not like the Coen Brothers, you know, making an edgy movie that's trying to challenge you in any way. It's just a movie that's fun and enjoyable, and it doesn't seem to have a reason for existing. The plot doesn't matter, and yet it all works, and there's something really unique and cool about that. They weren't trying to reinvent the wheel, they weren't trying to create some really intricate plot that you'd have to figure out and be talking about for weeks. They were just creating a, a crazy cast of characters and having fun, and I think that's part of it, is you can tell the fun that went into making this movie. It really comes across, and I think it makes it fun to watch, for at least for me and, and my friends. So I think that's where it comes from, is so much of this just joy from the movie, and then the nostalgia and wanting to recapture that joy.
0: I think this is very much related to the film that came before it, even though it was met with a much harsher response at the time. Fargo has such a nihilistic view of crime, and while this is supposed to be somewhat of a knockoff of the Raymond Chandler, the Marlowe films of the like 30s and 40s, it still has a very silly view of crime and criminals. And coming from that background, Dad, as a former criminal defense attorney, this seems much more authentic to actual crime than most of the, like, Michael Mann films that we get that have these professional bank robbers.
2: Oh, I can tell stories. I had a client who was arrested and came in couldn't figure out how the police were able to track him down. I said, did you notice that you stole a Cadillac and it had OnStar? Oh, what's that? I said, it's a satellite device that they can use to track your whereabouts. Oh, well, maybe I shouldn't have stolen a Cadillac then. Yeah. Or the group that's going to break in and steal dynamite so they can blow up a door and break into a clinic to steal narcotics. And so they plant their girlfriends with walkie-talkies on each end of the road leading up to the quarry where they're going to break in. And they give them walkie-talkies so they can radio in and tell them that if the police are coming. They set the walkie-talkies to the police uh, channel. So the police were listening to the entire communication between the group. And these are true stories.
1: Yeah, I mean, this movie, I think, is an interesting contrast with Fargo. You know, Fargo to me, is a brilliant film. I, I think if I watched these two back to back and didn't know that they were Coen brothers, I would not, I would have no idea that these were made by the same people. Fargo is as, as smart and, and interesting as it is. It's very bleak. You mentioned it's nihilistic. In here, they make a lot of fun of the idea of nihilism, but that movie is very nihilistic. I don't rewatch Fargo ever. You know, I, I don't, the, the guy going in a wood chipper is not a fun Thursday night. And it, it, I think, again, it is a brilliant film, but this movie is so much warmer and funnier and, and just more accessible. And so it, it's really interesting to look at the fact that they made these two back-to-back uh, because it just doesn't seem like it tracks.
0: See, I'm not sure that I would necessarily agree because I look at Fargo as kind of the median point between this and something like No Country for Old Men, which I know a lot of people watch a lot or have a good rewatchability story with but I don't think I've watched it more than maybe twice. I know we have to visit it at some point for the course of the show. We haven't covered it yet. And that's going to be a good story because the 07 Oscar year is probably one of the best we've had in the two thousands, but that's not one where I really thought they took the same tone. If you're talking about the nihilistic view point of view, they have towards crime. That to me is by far the most bleak. Whereas Fargo really pokes fun at both the Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare characters and even William H. Macy. So I I do find that one somewhat funny, even though I guess I can understand where your point of view is. I just look at this one as a spiritual cousin of sorts. And it also doesn't surprise me that they followed it up with, oh, brother, where art thou? Because to me, there's a maybe not the exact same point of view, but it's a similar tone at times, even though the subject material is a little bit different.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely see The Le Lebowski as sort of the, the intermediary between Fargo and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But, you know, it, it was moving further on the absurdity scale. Oh Brother, Where Art Thou is, is a complete kind of silly farce, whereas you know, this one at least incorporated some elements of, like you said, hard-boiled detective stuff, even though it's sort of mocked. They were going for that, that neo-noir kind of feel to it and, and making that absurdist. And then, yes, I agree that No Country for Old Men is, is way more bleak. That is definitely the bleakest movie I would say they've done other than maybe like Blood Simple or something. And the rewatchability there, I loved it when I saw it in the theaters, uh, No Country for Old Men. I think it's, I think it's really well done. But, you know, Cormac McCarthy, I mean, it's just going to, it's going to be bleak. It's going to be depressing. And that, again, yeah, that's a, that's a movie that I have not watched again since I saw it in the theaters.
0: And then you have their absurdity run amok when you get to something like The Lady Killers, which is just awful. <laughs> well, I didn't even see. It's one of those Tom Hanks choices that you're like, why are you in this film? Yeah. yeah. Well, but the,
2: the one thing you can say, even on, even those Coen Brothers films that are very dark, it's all about strange characters. Sometimes the strange character is living in, within the confines of a normal existence. Other times their films overemphasize the uniqueness or the strangeness of the character in order to make a comedic point. And I think what they say a lot of their films are that there are these people that exist in society in general, that sometimes are able to temper their uniqueness, but the Cohen brothers want to bring it out and show that these people are really there and that we're moving among them. And we just don't notice how strange or how unique or how odds they can be at times. So that uh, that's the common thing theme that I see within the Cohen's is that. All the, their characters, at least some of them, and even in the darker films, have that oddity.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting because I mean, the characters in this film are people that are really under the radar. They're not, you know, other than maybe the big Lebowski and Mod, the rest of the main cast of characters are sort of a bunch of losers that you would just ignore. Like they're people that you would see in the supermarket or something. He's wearing his robe and he's buying some cream, and you just okay, that's weird, and you move on. They're not people who are making a big wa- you know, big waves in the world. They're not people that most filmmakers would want to, to highlight and, and create movies around. And that makes it interesting to me. This is the minutia of life. These are kind of the weirdos and outcasts that we normally don't see set up as movie stars. So that is something that I think they've done really well in a lot of their movies.
0: One of the curiosities that I had in trying to th- conceive of this movie, if I were to describe it to anybody else... Part of it is is pitching what the genre is. I have no idea where you could place this on a spectrum of genre because I think it is almost its own genre to itself. But do either of you think this has like a specific genre type you could neatly fit it in?
1: No, <laughs> it, is, it is, you know, other than just, I guess you could say a comedy. But beyond that, yeah, it, it's a really, it's a genre mashup. It's a very weird film.
2: I'm old enough to remember Cheech and Chong in their heyday. And to some extent, this is an ex- an extension of the Cheech and Chong films made more mainstream, taking those same type of characters instead of overplaying them, making them more subtle as they would really exist within society. The true burnout that really just kind of doesn't care. He's just happy and go lucky in his life, smoking pot and just living his life. So that would be the only thing
0: I could come up with with the genre. Well, I have to mash up two different things to come up with one. And there are a couple of other films that I could maybe fit within this. Ones that aren't nearly as beloved or successful. But I had a neo-noir comedy. Because this does have elements of the noir type. Because it's borrowing from the Marlowe films specifically. But it also obviously is a broad comedy. The only trick of it is, is you don't really think of it as a comedy until probably the second time you watch it, because the first time, because you're focused so much on the plot, you're like, why is this film even in existence? What is this thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good way to describe it. I think I I didn't watch it that way, though, the first time. I think I wasn't focused on the plot at all. And I just thought this is a bizarre ride uh, and it was fun. And I kind of, again, feel like the plot is is secondary but it does make sense that, you know, it is a neo-noir comedy. I mean, if you look at it, it has all the, you know, hallmarks of being a sort of a, de- a detective film. The who, uh, whodunit, uh, uh, you know, did she kidnap herself? What what ended up happening? But none of that really matters in the end. And it, it really is just kind of enjoying the ride. But I, I agree that for a lot of people, it probably does take more than one viewing to be able to sit back and enjoy the ride because they're just so used to watching with a laser focus on plot. And I think you have to sort of turn off your brain for this one and just enjoy the ride.
2: Probably, and most people will will probably differ with me, I think the most or the funniest character, the one that holds true the most to me is Julianne Moore. She plays that so deadpan, and I've known so many intellectual artists, wealthies, people who have this bizarre behavior and act and think like her, And just kind of, wow, where are they coming from on this? But the scene with her flying through the air, naked, uh, spraying paint all over the canvas. It's just,
0: yeah, I've, I've known a few of those. That was the one I had the most difficulty kind of relating to, because I don't think I know anybody that's like that, but I know there are people like that. It's the one that seems the most stereotypical of a projection of people that I don't know personally, but that other people have a lot of experiences with.
2: I uh, I went to a small liberal arts college, and I knew lots of people that were like that. And they hung out in these uh, strange, they used to have these artsy houses that you could go into, like the women's center or the German house and careful
0: now a little bit here. (laughs) Well,
2: they no, they were artsy, you know, they they were eclectic and they would have these artistic people who were in there who would hang out or who were living in those. And they were like this. I mean, I remember my mom writing with me and uh, I had to pick up a paycheck because I worked for the college in the summer and my mother was blind, so she couldn't see, but she's sitting in the car. I was taking her to the store, and I stopped to pick up. I came out, and there was a kid sitting on a rock about 15, 20 feet away from the car, and he's got a joint that was so big he needed two hands to hold it, smoking it in the middle of the campus, out in the open, and my mother going, what is that smell? Oh, nothing, Mom. I'm sure it's just wind from like the uh, the trash burning or something. But that's the kind of environment that that was. And it just when I I, I watch this film again, I'm thinking of all these people that I knew in college.
1: Yeah, me too. Actually, I mean, th- there is this is a send up of artistic pretension of of modern art and how pretentious it can be. And certainly, you know, there is kind of wild feminist aspect of that that we've, that we've all had some experience with. And I think, you know, there's validity to every type of art. You know, I have seen, I, I live in Santa Cruz and my friend went to UCSC. I went to Davis, which is slightly less um, hippie-ish, but Santa Cruz, you know, I remember coming here and seeing, you know, art, artistic installations of women who had drawn stuff with period blood. Like, you know, it's that, there there is that element of sort of avant-garde weirdness that extends. And it's not just... The feminist art world. I mean, you know, I think of Andy Warhol and, and the silly pop art movement with soup cans as being very similar. It, you know, this is, again, a send up and, and a mocking of artistic pretension. It is people who take it so seriously. And that is their whole identity. And, you know, I think Maude is in many ways just kind of a, a representation of, of, you know, she, she is an, an iconic figure that sort of represents all of that wrapped into one.
0: So let's dig a little further into the movie. Dad, do you have our plot summary ready for us? I do. Jeff
2: Lebowski, the dude, Jeff Bridges, lives a carefree life of pot smoking and bowling when he becomes the victim of a mistaken identity. When home invaders realize their mistake, they leave the dude's apartment, but not before urinating on his living room rug. At the urging of his friends, Walter Sobchak, John Goodman, And Donnie Karabatsos, Steve Bashimi. he goes to see his wealthy namesake to get the replacement for his rug. The dude soon finds himself embroiled in a story of extortion, double-cross, deception, embezzlement, and sex. Will the dude be able to free himself from this mess and get back to the bowling alley?
0: Thank you. Did you know? In an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, John Goodman stated that the dude, referring to the Big Lebowski as a human paraquat, was one of the only improvised lines to make it into the final film. Virtually every other line, including every man and dude, was scripted. Did you know? Before filming a scene, Jeff Bridges would frequently ask the Coen brothers, Did the dude burn one out on the way over? If they said he had, he would rub his knuckles in his eyes before doing a take to make his eyes appear bloodshot. Did you know? A lot of the dude's clothes in the movie were Jeff Bridges' own clothes, including his Jelly's sandals, which he still owns and uses to this day. Did you know? In an early draft of the script, the dude's source of income was revealed. He was an heir to the inventor of the Rubik's Cube, which would also have made him a Hungarian in turn. It was Joel Cohen's idea to drop this and never say. Did you know? In a 2013 interview with Terry Gross, Joel Cohen told a story about having recently been at a movie theater in San Francisco where they saw a booth displaying Lebowski posters. Ethan Cohen asked the teenage girl there what was going on and she proceeded to tell him about the theater's nightly screenings of the movie. She said that people come dressed in costumes and you should come and you'll like it. It, It's fun. She had no idea that the two men had made the movie. Did you know? T-Bone Burnett acted as music consultant for the movie and helped Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen establish the dude's taste in music. Burnett selected many of the existing songs in the movie and also suggested the dude's hatred towards the Eagles, as he himself is not a fan either. One of the band's members, Glenn Fry, was so reportedly dismayed about this that he even once angrily confronted Jeff Bridges when they met at a party. Ah oh. did you know in the clean version for television, the famous line, this is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass was changed to this is what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. <laughs> <laughs> it's frequently cited as one of the most creative edits made for film to be aired on television. And with that, we'll take our first break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are discussing the second-highest-grossing Japanese film of all time, Your Name, from 2016, written and directed by Makoto Shinkai, starring Mitsuha Miyamizu, Taki Tachibana, and Miki Akudera. God, I hope I got those right. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. That takes us to Best Performance. Given that we already stated in the Did You Know section that just about every word of this movie is down in the script, the tone of it is so unique even within Cohen brother films. And I don't know how many other people could conceptualize a universe like this or, to Shane's point from earlier, would even care about people that we would normally just not even think twice about in our everyday life. I have to give it to Joel and Ethan Cohen.
1: Yeah, that's good. I mean, I I didn't know that was an option as far as performance goes, but that's – I mean, they are the the stars of this show 100% because, like you said, they really – you know, you you would – it almost feels – unscripted in a lot of of parts, but the fact that they put it together and crafted it to the point that it felt effortless like that is a real testament to what great writers they are. I went with uh, John Goodman. For me, the Walter character is the most quotable, the most charismatic. He's seen chewing in a lot of ways, but it's in the best way, and he is, to me, the funniest part of this film and the most memorable And I think that when I think of this film, you know, Jeff Bridges and John Goodman are the two people that I think of. And Goodman's character just jumps off the screen for me.
0: Absolutely 100% agreed. He's only my best secondary just because I think I had by force of habit to go with the Coens just slightly ahead of him. But I had a real debate about going with John Goodman. Honestly, I don't know if he's been better in a film.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think this is his best performance.
0: Dad, who did you have for best performance? I had Jeff Bridges and I've seen interviews
2: where Jeff Bridges basically admits that the dude and he are one and the same, that this is him in real life. And I just thought, and so maybe that's why he presented or portrayed this character. So brilliantly is that it's so much like himself. And then when I, you know, you mentioned it, I saw that too, that he was wearing his own clothes throughout. I'm like, Boy, uh, yeah, okay, now I guess I do understand this portrayal. So I, I don't know if the portrayal in the film would have been nearly as odd or oddballish if Jeff Bridges wasn't kind of portraying himself to some extent, the oddity of his own personality. I think he took what could have been a fairly benign character and and up the ante just by being more natural and completely believable in the role. So that's why I went with him on this. But I I I'll go with, start off with secondary performance. I agree totally with your comments regarding John Goodman and that's who I have as my secondary performance. His ability to turn on a dime and just start going into these tirades. Really, really good over the line
1: (laughs) yeah for me um i agree with everything you said about jeff bridges and that's why he's my secondary performance Uh, it does feel incredibly natural it feels like this is at least a facet of jeff bridges personality for sure that he sort of could have gone this route if he didn't go acting maybe he just would have turned into the dude and it it feels very effortless and it's just a fun performance to watch
0: Well, I'll take it even one step further on that. He's my most charismatic. And going back to what you said, I remember during last week's taping of our show when I tried to read the, I'm the dude, man, El Duderino, just even me reading it and even attempting to sound like the dude seems so inauthentic. I can't do it as well as he can. Somehow he's able to imbue this personality with all these written words that are just said in such sequence, but with the certain amount of pause and the emphasis in certain places that makes you feel like he's the dude, I think, in anybody else's hands. It would just feel so Mm off-putting. Yeah. Yeah. It almost feels like when you read all these little side comments, like it would mean – much more if this weren't written, but the way you have to deliver it as written feels almost like if you were trying to perform Huckleberry Finn on stage and you had to do it in the vernacular, but you'd never heard anybody speak like that before. So I have to just give him mad respect. But the other thing is, is you have to buy into his character to even care about the movie or where it's progressing at all. And given the nature of who he is, and again, going back to the point that this is not a character in ordinary life. That you would care about. In fact, it would be somebody that would be part of, is it the YouTube series or the Facebook series, people of Walmart that he seems like he just steps right out from. I just don't think that I would necessarily care about this guy. The only thing that seems inauthentic is, is instead of from Los Angeles, this guy seems much more like he would be from Florida. (laughs)
1: I agree. Actually, I don't associate Los Angeles with characters like the dude. And I've spent a lot of time in LA, you know, doing shows and then I have I have family there as well. So I totally agree with that. For me, most charismatic, I went with uh, John Goodman, again, just because I I agree with everything you guys are saying. But I just felt like from when I watched this movie, uh, Walter steals every scene, he's just larger than life. And he's super charismatic. I you know, I think the definition of that character is the charisma, or the defining characteristic of that character. And uh, so for, that's who I went with.
0: Yeah, anybody that's in a modern day right now would be subject to potential cancellation. And yet somehow because of the way John Goodman plays it, it's a very likable character, not something easy to pull off.
1: That's what's fascinating about it to me is he is just a really difficult and he also is weirdly self-conscious about his Even his own, you know, like when he makes fun of like the Chinaman thing, right? Saying the Chinaman over and (laughs) over He knows that like these prejudices that he obviously shares, he says the Chinaman as right after he says, oh, and dude, that is not the preferred nomenclature. Asian American, please. And then he says, you know, the Chinaman is not the issue here, dude. Like, it's clear that he has all of these foibles and prejudices and, and issues, but he's aware of them and he's like sort of trying to be better and that makes him likable, but he's unable to be better. And that makes him relatable because he's still, you know, he's very fallible character, very, he can't control his own anger. He has anger issues. He's kind of a jerk, but somehow he's likable. And to me, that is just a fascinating combination.
0: Well, but he's also self-aware in a way that I don't think people that are like this in reality usually are. Specifically, I'll point to the one context. Walter, you're not wrong, but you're just an asshole. Well, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) he just lets, yep, I accept that. I know I am.
1: That is a line that I have, you know, incorporated into my life. And I say probably at least, you know, a few times a year to someone. I'm like, you're not wrong. You're just an asshole.
0: (laughs) Dad, you're most charismatic. I I have a
2: tie. And uh, I went out in the mainstream just because I wanted to recognize him. First, John Totoro. I mean, he's just so good. I love him as an actor. Everything he is in, he is just a scene stealer. He has an ability to just be over the top without being annoying and he can just do it in anything, whether it's being Jesus in this or Billy Martin in another film or anything at all. I mean, he, he played Howard Cosell in a TV movie. He's got great range and just dynamite. The other one is David Heddleston. and Simply because the two films I remember him from are this one and Blazing Saddles. In both cases, he's had to be some sort of like, in this case, he was uh, a rich guy on the uh, war path against slovenliness and laziness. And in Blazing Saddles, just an absolute bigot. We don't want the Irish. <sighs> yes. <laughs> I had to point that out to you. Because I we're talking about the film and I said said that line and you're like that's the same guy I said yes but I had to point out for both of them just because I thought they both deserve honorable mention for the film.
1: Those are great choices and I think the John Turturro one in particular because at least you know Hiddleston there there's a reason for him to be there he's an integral part of the plot whereas the Turturro character has no business being in this movie there's no need for that subplot about like a pederath who you know is this weird bowling you know it's almost like bowling is his kink it's it's just a you know he's licking his golf ball and there's just or it's his golf ball there's from one of the lines in the movie uh his bowling ball and you know there is just no reason for that character to exist it just is this great weird you know shoe-in that they stuffed in here That just makes the movie. It's one of the great characters in the movie. And again, there's no reason for it. And that just is, again, one of the sort of strange and unique elements of this film that makes it work is how much is stuffed in that doesn't need to be there. And yet the movie would suffer without it.
2: I would say Totoro is basically the cherry on the top of the banana split. It doesn't have to be there, but it looks very much better. And I love the maraschino cherry on the top anyway.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You said it, man. You don't fuck with the Jesus. You Don't fuck with the Jesus. No, it's the degree to which if you're going to be an all-time classic comedy, it's always in the supporting characters and the smallest parts. The smallest roles often have some of the best lines because the guy who's usually leading it is not Jeff Bridges or even Will Ferrell. It's usually the straight man and everybody else is the fat man, the guy to play off of. And this has somewhat both or none, but in any of those, you think about any of your classic favorite comedies, there's always one guy who's in the background for almost all of it, except like two lines. He did something with an absolute nothing part, and the movie's all that much better because of it. But there's also probably about five other characters in this that, like Brant, Philip Seymour Hoffman is way too talented to be in this movie, Yeah, and he is.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good part, too. And, you know, even the guy, his his landlord, who is just this weird, offbeat, strange character who has his his dance recital that they all go to like it, that doesn't need to be there. That's totally weird. And it's just a a little memorable moment from from the film. Like the guy means nothing. And why is he even there?
0: So that moves us to best scene. So my nominees. Let's see here. I have Five. 10, 12 nominees for best scene here. So first off, the cold open. And I'll move past the original narration by Sam Elliott, but there's somebody else that really doesn't need to be in this film, but adds a degree of depth and quality that the movie probably shouldn't have. But when it's, uh, well, you obviously don't play golf man, and then he pees on the rug. Shouldn't be a good scene, and yet somehow is it's the best version of somebody getting a swirly ever.
1: <laughs> yeah. The whole, uh, let me, let me see It's down there. Let me take another look. Like just the fact that he's getting pushed into the toilet and you know, he should be freaking out, but the most dude thing in the world is to just kind of throw off a quip right there and end up getting punished for it. But you know, giving, giving zero Fs, that's kind of his thing. It is, it really does set the tone for the movie and I think, yeah, that that's a great scene.
0: So the next one I have down, and it kind of skips an important possible point in the movie where Donnie and Walter are trying to talk him into going to see The Big Lebowski for the first time. But I'll go as my next nominee to the actual meeting of The Big Lebowski. Everything from Brant showing him through all of the awards and significance of The Big Lebowski, which is another one of these great exposition without exposition scenes, which... I always give a mad amount of respect to anybody who can actually do it because I don't think I could if I were writing a script. And then actually meeting the Big Lebowski, I, I think, is probably one of the best setup parts of the movie where we need to move with the plot line.
1: I had that one on my list as well. Yeah.
0: So then I have Over the Line, which we've quoted a bunch of times already. I don't think I need to explain that one much. I have then Ransom Goes Haywire where Walter loses his undies. Dream sequence number one. The fact that I have to put it as number one dream sequence already means that this is going to be special. Then I have the introduction of Maude Lebowski, as we mentioned with the naked swinging and paint. Then confronting Larry Sellers, which again, why is it seen in this movie? (laughs) Yeah. Jackie Treehorn. Dream sequence number two, which I think is the more famous one. Showdown of the Lebowskis. Square off with the Nihilists. And Donnie's funeral. I'm sure there's something else that I missed. What did I miss?
1: The only other one that I really like, I don't know if I, it probably wouldn't be above a few of the ones you mentioned, but uh, where he's smoking the joint in the bathtub and the Nihilists come in with the marmot scene and they throw it in the water and he has this panic attack and, you know, they pull it out and hey, this is a private residence, man. Uh, just it's similar to that cold open where it just really encapsulates the whole movie in one scene. It's this guy who's just going about his stoned life, having a you know, enjoying his bath. And then a bunch of people come in and just wreck his 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 chill. They, they harsh his mellow. And that's kind of what this movie is about is a guy who is going through his life and a bunch of weird stuff happens and he has to deal with it. But beyond that, yeah, the second dream sequence is on my list. The Just Dropped In to See What Condition, the Kenny Rogers song, uh, the whole bowling, you know, surrealist uh, dream. That That is one, one of the things that I remember most about this. Like, when I think about this movie, I always picture that scene. And then, yeah, his confrontation with Lebowski, the whole you know, the yelling of the, the bums lost, the bums lost as he walks out and just says, yeah, give me, give me one of the rugs, you know, and he wins that, he wins that interaction. And that, that again is an encapsulation of the movie is, you know, he's, he's getting, his mellows getting harsh, he's getting yelled at, but in the end, he's going to come out. Okay. And, uh, you know, and of course the lines with his El Dutrino, or, you know, if, if you're not in the whole brevity thing, it just, it really
0: sums up those characters. Did I miss anything, dad? No, I
2: actually kind of combined a couple of the scenes as far as my best, favorite, and most indelible, but because I think they're too closely tied to divide
0: them, but that's just my... So as far as best, favorite, and indelible, I would be very surprised if we overlapped or agreed at all on any of these. So as far as best scene, for me, I mean, it's picking between a a few great ones here because it combines so many elements and actually is something that drives the plot forward but is a complete red herring during the middle of the film I'm going to go confronting Larry Sellers I think the hardest I laughed was this is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass
1: (laughs) yeah I mean I'm chuckling even thinking about it right now that's a funny scene
0: when you find a stranger in the Alps (laughs)
2: Uh, 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 if you do, it's usually on a goat path.
1: Uh, what were
0: your best scenes?
1: So I listed some, some of mine. Those were the ones that I was talking about for for best scene. God, it, it is so hard to choose. One of my favorite scenes. Well, I guess we're on best scene, so I won't get to that yet. But I, the the best scene for me would probably be just because I do think it sums up the movie. That whole scene with starting with Brant. The confrontation with Lebowski, and then him walking out and getting the rug, and even meeting Bunny as he leaves—you know that that whole s- sequence, if we can call that a scene—I uh, think sums up the movie and and has a little bit of everything. It's got the absurdity, it's got you know the this the silliness, and it also has kind of the you know the the plot points, setting up the plot points, and all of the anger of of Lebowski kind of versus Lebowski. It's the two different completely contrasting Lebowski's the one who is completely wrapped up in in his his possessions and 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 wealth and you know and, and hygiene and the other one who couldn't care about any of those things. And so to me that 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 really encapsulates the movie.
0: I absolutely adore Brandt in that scene because he's so uncomfortable. <laughs> and if Brandt's watching he's gotta pay an extra hundred
1: <laughs> and just
0: how awkward he is in that one moment,
1: yeah, oh, it's priceless. Really good.
2: My best scene. I combined the the bowling scene where Walter's pushing him to go in the front the Big Lebowski, and his meeting the Big Lebowski because it's a juxtaposition. It's Walter criticizing the dude for being weak by not standing up for his rights, and then turn around, and the other part of the dude is being criticized by the big Lebowski for being slovenly and lacking in motivation or work ethic. So you have two different people finding a problem with the dude from two different directions, but both basically ripping him for being himself. And I thought that that summed up the film. He is... The dude is like a ping pong ball going back and forth between the various elements of this with people hitting him and knocking him over the, the, the net throughout the entire thing and him not really caring.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a good way to describe it.
0: So my favorite scene in this one is I think probably one of the more infamous ones. Again, it's the over the line scene. And just because the first time I saw it, it, Struck me as so stark what John Goodman was doing. I didn't really quite understand it. It it just, it seemed off for me because he switches from zero to 60 in literally a snap. So the second time you watch it, you know, you're expecting it. And so you can actually laugh, but it was the one that kind of caught me awkwardly the first time. And I think as you watch it, you understand the pacing of it a lot better and it becomes one of the funnier sequences in the movie because he's just grossly overreacting. But I think in the way I first watched it, I'm is it Sonny? In that he's like the audience avatar in that moment because you're like, what the fuck is this guy doing? He's pulling a gun on you because of a bowling moment?
1: Yeah, I mean that that really that really wraps up the Walter character. I mean, it's it is that zero to sixty thing and and his lack of self-control, and then at the same time sort of Knowing that he's crossed the line a little bit, but not wanting to apologize for it. It's just it, it is everything that, you know, we we come to learn about him.
2: Well, it, it epitomizes those common everyday bowling mishaps that lead to gun violence that happen on a daily basis.
1: <laughs> or like, you know, traffic, just someone flips off somebody and then all of a sudden they're shooting, you know.
0: Well, yeah, I was going to say in America anymore, you really don't need much of an excuse for gun violence. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Anyway, my favorite scene is first of all Ben Gazzara as the porn king Jesse Trehorne or excuse me Jackie Trehorne was just an absolute great choice because here's this guy who looks like a normal businessman which is guys who are in the porn business, you know, you you'd think of them as being sleazy and bad to pay and et cetera. No, Ben Gazzara is just kind of this business guy. You, and then the dream sequence that follows from it, it was just—I loved it. I thought it was great. Just the expressions on Bridge's face as he's going between the the lady's legs and he's like, eh. and I—it's—it's <laughs> it's priceless.
1: That one moment in the Jackie Treehorn scene that I love is when. He tries to do actually a little bit of traditional sleuthing where he runs over and, and very smartly, you know, does the, the impression with the, the pencil to figure out what he'd been writing down. And it's just a doodle <laughs> of like a guy with a, a, an erection. And just think that moment is, is something that I always remember from the film.
0: Oddly enough, I think this is the same year as Bookie Nights and he reminds me so much of the same Burt Reynolds character. Did every like porn director or... A porn producer like dressed the same, yeah. Well, I thought Burt Reynolds was much more over the top than
2: Ben Gazzara was in the in similar positions.
0: Well, he also had a lot more room to work within during the course of his film because he was a much bigger part of that film. But even so, yeah. Did we get your favorite scene, Shane?
1: So, I have two favorite scenes I would go with as my I think I'm going to go with as my favorite scene the Jesus moment, just you know him doing the little dance after he rolls the ball and saying you know i if you try to pull a piece on me, I'll stick it up your ass and pull the trigger until it goes click that all of that and 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 the Walters reaction where he just sits there and for once is very reserved and just kind of he's not taking the bait and he sits there and just says, you know eight year olds dude that that scene to me." is the one that I, I could rewind that scene a bunch of times. It's just great. And then another scene that I think we haven't mentioned but that I really love is the scene with Maud and the other guy who has that weird laugh who just kind of sits there, you know, being weird and laughing about this phone call that they're getting and sort of he's judging the dude. It, it, to me, it's a great contrast of, again, that pretentious art world that we talked about and just a regular person sitting there trying to understand you know, the, the inside jokes and he's out of, out of the, the inside group. And I think that's how we all feel when confronted with that type of silliness, you know, that there is that silliness in the world. There is that pretentious art world. And the, the dude really stands in for the everyman there, just standing there with his drink, watching these two people cackling over something that isn't funny and doesn't make any sense. And to me, that was, a, that was great because I really identify with that. Uh, I, that's one moment where I feel like the dude. A lot of the times in my life, where I'm just watching people have their inside jokes and feel very they're they're obviously you know very happy with themselves and self satisfied, and I just sit there not understanding it.
2: I have an honorable mention: the uh, scene where Walter takes the bat to the car, and then the guy comes. I just bought this car.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, I loved that one. I thought that was great. So as far as indelible moment, I'm of two minds on this one. I don't know if we've ever nominated a character as the most indelible. If I had to pick a moment, I'll probably go with the second dream sequence, because I think that one is the one that has crossed over to general pop culture a bit, given that there was a Super Bowl commercial kind of featuring that a few years ago. But if there's one thing that truly stands out, it's the character of the dude.
1: Yeah, for sure. I I actually chose that second dream sequence for the most indelible moment. Because I think when people think of this movie, uh, they think of that. It is the most sort of colorful, candy-like sequence of these giant bowling balls. It's all very expressionist, like German expressionism. But, you know, and the song is great. I mean, it's a song that now I have on one of my playlists where like I'll just, you know, that song comes on and I think about that scene, but also I just kind of love the song. And so I think it, it did burrow its way into pop culture. But yeah, the dude, for sure, the dude is also a a part of pop culture now.
2: I had the scattering of the ashes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What does this have to do
2: with Vietnam? (laughs) Well, not just that. But, I mean, think about it. Not only did they botch it up, his body or his death is all over them, both figuratively and literally. I mean, they killed him by their stupidity, and then... By their stupidity, he's all over them. And so, I mean, it just like they miss the absurdity of the whole thing. Is just, uh, I just don't always remember that because now anytime anybody starts talking about scattering of ashes, I'm just going to go, make sure
0: you stand downwind or upwind. You know, you mentioned that, but one of the most recurrent lines in the film is, shut up, Donnie. And he literally shuts him up. Yeah. Well, that's a good opportunity to take our second break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley Rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our master greatest movies of all time list that has every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show. Or you can go to com slash podcast and find it as the top entry on our show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 147 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week?
2: Yes. Walter Marish, 101, American Film Producer. Did uh, the Heat of the Night, which he won the Academy Award for in nineteen sixty seven, the film Midway and the Hawaiians. He was a former president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Michael Blackwood, eighty eight, American documentary filmmaker, uh, directed over one hundred and fifty films during his career. Bernie Madison, eighty seven, American animator. He uh, worked on the Great Mouse Detective and Robin Hood for Disney was a screenwriter and contributed with Beauty and the Beast. He was the longest-serving employee of the Walt Disney Company, uh, 70 years, or would have had 70 years in June of this year. Jay Weston, 83, American film producer, uh, involved in The uh, Lady Sings the Blues and Buddy Buddy. Ted Donaldson, 89, American actor, was in uh, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, The Adventures of Rusty, and was in the radio version of Father Knows Best. Sarah Lane, 73, American actress. She was in The Virginian, and I saw what you did. Gary Rossington, 71, American Hall of Fame guitarist from uh, Leonard Skinner and Rossington Collins Band, the last surviving member of the original Leonard Skinner Band. And then finally, Tom Sizemore, 61, American actor, Natural Born Killers, Black Hook Down, Saving Private Ryan,
0: and Heat. And so we honor these here for their contributions to the arts with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. And now on to the probably longest section of the entire podcast: best funniest lines. The dude, that rug really tied the room together.
1: You're out of your element, Donnie, I think is a classic. He says it numerous times. Uh, we mentioned that you're not wrong, Walter. You're just an asshole. One of the, probably my favorite line in the movie. You know, the guy saying, "What is this?" Holding up the bowling ball. Well, obviously, you're not a golfer. Uh, there are so many good lines. It just this is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass we could go on all day.
2: Go ahead, dad. The dude, let me explain something to you. I'm not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me. You know that, you know, his dude, or, you know, Duder or El Duderino. If you're
0: not into the whole brevity thing, Walter Nihilus, fuck me. I mean, say what you want about the tenets of national socialism, dude. At least it's an ethos.
1: <laughs> That's a great line. I, For me, uh, you want a toe, dude? I can get you a toe. I can get you a toe by 3 o'clock this afternoon with nail polish.
2: The dude, Walter, I love you, but sooner or later, you're going to have to face the fact you're a goddamn moron. Shut the fuck up, Donnie.
1: The Chinaman is not the preferred nomenclature, dude.
2: The dude. God damn you, Walter. You fucking asshole. Everything's a fucking travesty with you, man. And what all that shit about Vietnam? What the fuck? Has anything got to do with Vietnam? What the fuck are you talking about?
0: Are you employed, sir? Employed? You don't go out looking for a job dressed like that on a weekday. Is this uh what day is this? Well, I do work, sir, so if you don't mind... I do mind. The dude minds. This will not stand. You know, this aggression will not stand, man.
1: I love that line because he does that numerous times where he absorbs something. The dude is kind of a sponge and he absorbs something because he sees that on TV. He sees George Bush saying that the aggression, this aggression will not stand. And then he spits it out later. And he does that a bunch of times throughout the movie. I like the stranger, the voiceover where he says uh, the dude abides.
2: Maude Lebowski, what do you do for recreation? The dude, oh, the usual. I right, bowl, drive around, the occasional acid flashback.
0: Hey, careful, man, there's a beverage here. <laughs> That's
1: a good one. We used to say that all the time. And you go to a bar in college and, careful, man, there's a beverage here. I like Maude saying the, uh, she she clearly cares very little about uh, their charity work when she says, uh, yes, Little Lebowski's urban achievers and proud we are of all of them.
0: Your turn, Dad. Uh, I'm out. One of my favorites of the entire movie because of the way they pronounce bear. Sometimes you eat the bar and sometimes, well, he eats you.
1: I like when uh, the dude is walking away from Bunny and says, I'm just going to go find a cash machine.
0: Fuck it, dude. Let's go bowling.
1: (laughs) I think we've, like I said, this could go all day, so I'll
0: tap out. Okay, I have one last one because it's the most memorable for me. I've heard it in so many other pop cultural contexts. Has the whole world gone crazy? Am I the only one around here who gives a shit about the rules? Market zero! That's a classic. All right. Like I said, (laughs) probably the longest section of the entire podcast right there. All right, Stanley Rubrik. We've got legacy up first. So because legacy and impact significance are kind of inverse of each other, I find this movie more easy to score on a legacy front than I do on an impact significance because of the complex nature of how this movie found an audience. So thankfully, Legacy is up first because I think that's the one that has a better appreciation the longer it's gone out from its initial release. And again, this is the 25th anniversary just about now. From an industry standpoint, I think there are are a lot of people that, like myself, needed a second or third viewing in order to appreciate the movie in the totality of Cohen brother works. And in fact, it's influenced probably a lot of the other reviews of some of their other comedies in uh, the years since. Something like a Hail Caesar, I appreciate a lot more because I appreciate this movie. So I actually will move this up to probably about a 4.5. I don't think that universally this is a movie that is something for everybody in the industry, but they... Look at it as I think anybody that likes Cohen brother films, there are maybe three that are going to be in everybody's top five, and we've already mentioned them: Fargo, this, and No Country for Old Men. Then the last two, I think that's up to a matter of taste. But almost by Universal standards, if you like Cohen brother movies, those three probably have to be in your top five. What about uh, True Grit? No, that wouldn't be in the top five for me. Okay. Raising Arizona is better than that movie. Blood Simple's better than that movie. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou is better than that movie. I like Hail Caesar more than True Grit. I enjoy True Grit, but is it like one of their best films? Probably not. I mean, they've made so many good classic films. It's, it's hard to differentiate, but I just don't put that up near the top. So I'll go with 4.5 for Industry. As an audience standpoint, again, this is a cult film and called a cult film for a reason. I don't think this is universally beloved. This is a film that appeals to a lot of people, especially the farther out we go. But it's also one that is, especially if people don't understand it and they come to it through somebody else who loves it, as I did, and they only watch it the one time just to kind of dip their toe in the water. I'm not sure this is one they give a second look to. And because of that, I can't give it full points. Again, there are a specific group of people, partially influenced by the internet and the internet age as they found a community in the late 90s, early 2000s, that has influenced how this movie is perceived, but I have to go with a four because I just don't see this as broadly appealing as something like Jurassic Park or you know one of those major Spielberg films or a Christopher Nolan film that a lot of people have seen and love. This is just not quite on that level, but those who love it really will go to bat for it. And so I can't give it much below that either. So I'll go with a straight four on that one for an 8.5 overall. All right. Whichever of you would like to go.
1: Yeah. I mean, I agree with you for the most part on the industry. I think 4.5 is fair. I think that it did. I, I think it probably had a little more impact on the industry than we would than is apparently visible uh, without digging a little deeper. But I think that Judd Apatow movies, I think I think everything that sort of came after from a comedic perspective had a little bit more leeway when it came to not having to be plot-driven and being able to just be a character ensemble. And I think that, you know, the Seth Rogen type of comedy, even maybe Will Ferrell, where you just have... Movies that are driven by character, you know, that where it's like it doesn't have to have a neat bow tied up at the end or a mystery that gets solved. It, even though this this film ostensibly does, it it doesn't matter. It, it It's irrelevant to the film. Really, this is just a movie where I would come and watch these characters living their lives because they're just that interesting and and funny and compelling. And I think that that allowed the interest industry to step back from having to, you know, I'm sure you guys are familiar with like the save the cat trope, right? Like this idea, it just th- these formulaic films that we're still seeing. But now in, in the streaming, in the era of streaming content, a lot of it doesn't have to be wrapped up within an episode. It can be these long character narrative arcs where you're just really showing up to hang out with these people for a certain amount of time. And so I think that the industry did absorb that, whether you know individual people would admit it or not. I think that it did have an effect, but it it is a slow burn film. It took a long time to find its audience, and um, you know I think that people wouldn't acknowledge as much the the impact and legacy that it's had. So I think four point five. I would go with that too, and then just legacy in the culture. I mean, I'd give it uh, boy pretty close to a five there I mean it, it is just it's one of the biggest films as far as cultural touchstones that there is out there so I would give it a, a five there for maybe a for me like a
2: 9.5 I'm going four for the industry because I think there are a lot of people within the industry who still don't understand the film uh, a lot of critics and for the public in general, There are a lot of people who really love this film, and there are a lot of people who have either never heard of it or can't understand it at all. But because of the passion of those that do, I'm going to give it a 4 for the public. So I'm going with an 8 overall.
0: So that's an 8.67 between the three of us on average. Impact Significance. This is going to probably be the toughest category out of any of the scoring that we have to do because it's placing it in a moment in time that is difficult for anyone who actually loves this movie to place. I think we're influenced a lot by how the legacy of this is understood and perceived comparatively to how it was received initially. And so that's, what's going to cloud some of this from an industry perspective perspective. Again, this is not, I was eight at the time, so it's it's really difficult for me to say and put myself in the place of this. I wasn't watching anything that probably wasn't a Disney movie at the time. But I think coming off of Fargo and the broad success that that film was, part of the reaction for this was, we're going to allow these guys to do anything and this is what they come up with. And that kind of initial first shock viewing where, and I've, I've heard this said about Will Ferrell comedies that he's even mentioned, that people have asked him, why are your movies funnier the second time? And it's because the first time you're often focusing on the plot. And in a movie that really doesn't care about the plot and is more about story, this is something that, again, I think is funnier the second time or maybe is only funny. The second time you view it and don't care about the plot as it exists. So from an industry standpoint, I think it's aged very well. But at the time, as far as impact, I'd probably have to be sold on it. I will go with a very fluid two at the moment. I could probably be talked up if given the right context, but I just don't know what the argument is for the impact of this movie until probably several years out past the five-year initial window that we usually reserve for this category. From an audience standpoint, given that this had already started a festival by the time we got to 2002, so that's four years, not five, within that window that we usually put for this category, I think it had found its audience, but hadn't grown to the level at which it is now, where it's kind of gotten its own special place in pop culture i think it was loved by some people but it wasn't nearly as broadly appealing as i think it is thought of as now so i'll go with a three there for a five overall again mine's a little bit fluid partly due to going first so i might change some things there based on either of your arguments but i'll let you guys convince me i'm wrong
1: no i mean i'd agree for the most part i think that initially, the industry did not react well to this movie. And the public honestly didn't either right away. It it did. T- it was like I said, it was a slow burn. It took a long time. And so I would probably go 2.5 for the industry, at least within those first few years. Like I said, I think that it has a, had a long term impact that in some ways is hard to measure, but I think is simmering under the surface of a lot of the stuff that you're seeing on streaming services now. But but I, I agree. I mean, I think that the industry kind of scratched their heads collectively and moved on initially. The public did that too, although the public caught on a lot quicker. And so within those first five years, probably around, a, I don't know, 3.5. I'd go maybe 5.5 here.
2: I think the uh, there were critics who really appreciated the Cohen Brothers films up till now who gave this high marks because they think they understood what the Coens were trying to do and what they were about. So I'm not gonna go quite as low. I went with a three because I think there were enough champions of this within the, the industry and within the critics itself. The public, like you said, I, I think it started to develop a following, but it was a little slower burn. So I'm not going to go to the same level I had for legacy in the long term. I'm going to go with a three for that. So I'm going with a straight six.
0: Didn't you have a 3.5 initially?
2: Okay, I'm sorry. Yes, I did. I I misread my own notes.
0: Okay, I just wanted to make sure I had your score right. So that will be a 5.67 between the three of us on average. Novelty. I'll let somebody else go first on this one, but it's going to rank highly for me. The only markdown on
2: novelty I had is, like I said earlier, I, I watched the Cheech and Chong films. This is a lot more intelligent version of Cheech and Chong. The same kind of, you know, mishaps and bizarre events and, and stuff where it's aspects of you know being high or being put in situations where you're kind of this, you know, the dudism type of behavior. Um, I went with an eight for that because there was several of films with this kind of subculture, but not nearly the uniqueness. In fact, I'm going to raise it just slightly. I'm going to go with an 8.5 for novelty based on what I'm just thinking about right now.
1: Yeah, I think that it certainly is an amalgam of a lot of different genres and it's like a pastiche and you can point to all of those different influences, but I don't think you can point to another movie that is similar to this one. This one is, it it takes a lot of uh, other movies and kind of mashes them together maybe, uh, but it comes up with something that is unique that really, there's no comparison. There's no movie that I can say, oh, of course this movie directly, you know, refers to such and such, or influenced this movie it just there's nothing that it linearly is adjacent to it really is in its own little bubble and that's what i think connected so much about this movie is that it is something that is out of the ordinary something weird it's a little weird unique gem and so for me i would go with a 9 on that i think i think this is a really really unique and it's a novelty film and so its novelty has to be high
0: I would agree on all those points, but I actually went with a 9.5. I think this is novel to every other filmmaker that isn't the Coen brothers. The only half point I went down is because they have a couple of other films I would say are spiritual cousins of this. Obviously, it's not in the same light, but I could see why Fargo is similar, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, Hail Caesar... Even the Lady Killers, I think, is kind of a spiritual cousin, even though it is not a successful movie. From that angle of what they've done, I think they're only comparable to themselves within this. And I'll just go back to the genre conversation we had earlier. What other film can you describe as a neo-noir comedy? Yeah. So I I can't quite get to a 10, but it's really, really close. But that makes the math easy for me. It's going to be a nine average between the three of us. Always like easy math. Classicness. Dad, let's let you go first. I didn't see that was too much that was not classic.
2: The constant struggle that's existed between the classes forever and ever. And it was the exposure of the fact that even though there's supposedly this class difference, ultimately everybody is the same. They're out for their own interests. They're also not always the most brilliant in criminal uh, activity as uh, you would think. The only point I would go down on classicness ultimately is uh, I just have a problem. I know the, the bowling scene and Walter's use of the gun and the, you know, crossing the line with the, the problems we're having in this society with gun violence. I had a little bit of problem with uh, the sheer rawness of that. And the other is the scene where he's in the Malibu uh, Sheriff's Department and the uh, chief brutalizes him, that struck a little too close to home with some of the situations that are existing right now with allegations of police brutality. So I went down to a nine. I mean, they're not huge in relation to the film, but those are the two points that bothered me.
1: I could definitely see those bothering you. I I do still feel like in some ways those almost point to how classic this movie is because we're still dealing with, you know, fascist police officers and gun violence and people whipping out a piece at a bowling alley is something I could certainly imagine happening now, even though this movie came out, you know, what, 20 years ago, or more than 20 years ago, is it now? So I do feel like that's still classic. And there is a lot of stuff that's sort of not PC in it, But I think that that is intentional and it's a send-up of those kind of people that say things that aren't PC. And, you know, it's not an endorsement of those. The dude saying Chinaman, it it does get called out, but then again, Walter uses that same uh, slur just a couple seconds later. And it's sort of the the hypocrisy of that. And I think that those are all still really relevant. I think everything pretty much in this film holds up. The only thing that I'm going to ding it for just a little bit is that it is so rooted in its time based on the Iraq war. You know, Saddam Hussein being in one of the dream sequences, uh, George Bush on the TV talking about this aggression will not stand and him kind of repeating that. So it sort of is really grounded in the Iraq war era. But beyond that, I think that everything else in the movie still holds up. I mean, I didn't see anything super problematic other than the stuff that is supposed to be problematic and is making fun of that. So for me, I'd go at 9.5. I think.
0: So I've been on a very, I guess, large journey with this film and this category. Initially, I'm trying to think what is exactly classic about this film? I didn't have the same things occur to me as you pointed out, Dad, but the at least the scene in the Malibu sheriff's office on hindsight, I could buy into what you're what you're saying. I'm not sure I could agree on the Walter Bowling scene just because, and I'll agree with Shane on this, that that seems authentic to even our modern struggles with it. I agree with your dated references. I just thought, what is it that necessarily is this ahead of its time on? Because it was already a period piece. This is a film about like 1990 or 1991 made in 1998 or released in 1998. So it's already somewhat of a period piece loosely, I would say. I'm not sure it's in the same definition as some other ones where like the queen about the same time is obviously flashing back to a, a, a completely different historical time. and has a lot of the removed parts of hindsight. So I don't know. It's a loose definition on what a period piece is. But I think this is dramatically ahead of its time on the drug culture. And the influence, especially where we are at now with our relationship politically with marijuana, it's way ahead of its time. The other thing that's really aged well is, as we pointed out, many of the characters we've seen reflected in our own lives, if not directly like one person is a like for like, as was mentioned, composites of these characters are found in a lot of different personalities. So... As I've thought about it, and as, uh, and I'm glad you guys went first, because I've had to have my mind kind of jogged on where I'm at with this film. I just think the film overall has become classic because of how it's somewhat endured despite its initial release. So I'm almost tempted, despite its flaws, and kind of its datedness in certain capacities, because I don't know how many people are going to understand the history of it. Like, If a 15-year-old comes to this film now, is he really going to understand all of the Vietnam references, even though they're just kind of, like, subtle? Is he going to understand why Walter's so animated by Vietnam, exactly, and the burning bodies and Khe and all this stuff? No, probably not, but I still think he understands the tone of what Walter's going for, and there are still those guys that are hanging around still talking like that. I'm tempted to go with a 10, but I'm not quite there, so I will agree and go with a 9.5. But that's, that's much different because originally I was coming in, I was going to go 8.5. So even that, I've, I've just slightly moved up on during the course of our conversation. So that's a 9.33 between the three of us. Rewatchability, I think I'd go up on this the more times I watch it. For right now, at this exact moment in time, I will go with an eight which kind of hits a, a weird sweet spot, but I'm really tempted, and maybe this is selling it low. The more I've thought about, the longer I've put my notes together to do this episode, the more we've discussed it, the more I'm very tempted to go watch it immediately after we stop recording. So maybe this should be higher, but I'm going to go an eight for right now.
1: For me, I mean, this is, again, you know, the, obviously we're coming at this, From our own perspective and our own sense of nostalgia. And for me, you know, I had a different experience with it. This was a movie that in college we used to watch over and over again. We all quoted. uh, And again, watching it, you know, I've watched it throughout the years. And then watching it a couple days ago, it hit just as hard and was just so enjoyable to watch again. And I'm sure I'll watch it more in the future. So just for me personally, and a lot of the people I know, this is probably one of the most rewatchable movies I can think of. And so I'm going 10.
2: This is a film that I think I'm going to have to watch a few more times just to really get a appreciation of the comedy within it. It, It's one where you watch it and then the couple of days after you start thinking about how much more funny it is than when you're initially watching it. And so I have a feeling the more it's watched, the better it gets. Because of that, I'm going to go with an 8. I think if I had seen it a few more times, it would probably be higher. But right at this point, I'd have to go with an 8.
0: So that's an 8.67 average between the three of us. For audience score, we had an 86% for Google users and a 93% for Rotten Tomato users for an 8.95. So to recap the categories, we had an 8.67 for Legacy, a 5.67 for Impact Significance, A 9 for novelty, a 9.33 for classicness, a 8.67 for rewatchability, and an 8.95 for audience score, giving us a final total of 50.29 overall score, placing it on our list currently between Taxi Driver and Aliens.
1: (laughs) Strange bedfellows.
0: Yeah. The comparisons on this show from week to week are just impressive but it it belongs among those movies all right remaining questions i think since this story is not necessarily about plot i think you could open up a few different things i have some questions i guess the ending leaves me a little cold at times especially because you're driving a detective story the aha moment of what happens with the reveal at the end and I guess I I will try not to spoil it, although if you're listening to this, you've likely seen the movie. But I don't understand why Donnie has to die and what the significance of it is, even though we get that amazing ashes spreading sequence at the end.
1: I also like the bargaining about the receptacle for the ashes. (laughs) That's a good moment, too.
0: And then you see the coffee can, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, again, it's like the Jesus little dance segments. It's just, wh- why, why, why is that here? And a lot of it doesn't have a reason. And that's what's so beloved about this film in some ways is all the non sequiturs and in silliness that's just packed in there and doesn't seem to have a point other than that. It's just, it leads to more enjoyable interactions and scenes among these characters. But yeah there are a lot of weird little things that I think just aren't explored that could have been explored more. I do wonder how many scenes hit the cutting room floor on this movie. It would be interesting to know, you know, if there's more with the nihilists. Why, how exactly did Bunny, you know, I know it was from the porn and and obviously Carl Hungus, but how is he connected to all the rest of these nihilists, like Flea and the girl who cut her toe off for this scheme? And how did they know Bunny was, going to Vegas and, and they how did they come up with this this plan and try to steal the money it just all of that is just kind of thrown out and not explored and it would be interesting it, I think it would be great if they did like a Netflix series of different aspects of this maybe exploring different characters and following them for a, a day so all of that is there are a lot of unanswered questions I think but I think that sort of contributes to the silliness and randomness of this movie that makes it endearing overall.
0: Well, you mentioned the Netflix part of it, and I don't know if I necessarily need a full series, but if they went and did something Buster Scruggs style, that was kind of vignettes that filled in the pieces, can you imagine how big that would be for Netflix?
1: That's kind of what I mean, like you know, spend a day with the nihilists and their weird interactions with with everyone and how that came about and, you know, and maybe a little bit more with Maud and or even following these characters later. I I do agree that I couldn't watch a whole series of the Nihilists, but you know, little vignettes I think would be brilliant.
0: Really? I, 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 struggle with now having discussed it in a different capacity than I did when I came up with some of my remaining questions. Cause again, the plot is secondary or just doesn't matter. One of the few that I came and it, it maybe bothers me as a structural point of view or the logic of it. But if the big Lebowski's trying to frame the dude for the insurance claim, I think, on the money, and that's how he's kind of passed it off. Why didn't he ever call the cops?
1: The, I think if you try to pull it too many strings, there, a lot's going to unravel here, but, but uh, I think he was sort of waiting to officially accuse him, and I'm surprised the cops weren't there during what I think is the only kind of cringy scene for me, which is where Walter pulls uh, Lebowski out of the wheelchair, that that was a little even watching that now i'm just like that was kind of a little rough uh you know he's like sobbing on the ground and then they just pick him up but yeah it would have made sense to have the cops waiting during that scene so yeah i'm not sure i mean a lot of these questions again just they're questions that sort of only when you dig into it and, and try to come up with questions do you think about them because otherwise again it just feels like none of that really matters
2: All of a sudden they go from him, you know, the Big Lebowski's accusing them of stealing the hundred or the million dollars. And yet it just ends. You know, you don't know if the dude's in trouble, if he's not in trouble. You also have to wonder about the fact that Maude was going to pay him $20,000 for recovering the million bucks. And in essence, he recovered the million bucks. So did she pay him the $20,000? And so he, that's how he can survive without worrying about the big Lebowski. Or here's the other one. I don't know too many people named Lebowski. And yet he impregnates Maud. And you start going, hmm, how? what kind of... Uh, potential incest issues may may exist. Are these people related somewhere? Is this some sort of like not that distant of cousin that just were separated, that
0: type of thing? Just me, but... Well, maybe they need that Icelandic app where uh, you can find out if you're related to somebody on the island.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. There you go.
0: The only one that tickles me just a little bit, and I think it is actually answered within the movie, but I have to go back and watch... Did Walter actually serve in Vietnam?
1: That's a good question, yeah.
0: I'm not sure. I swear he says it at one time or another, but because of the way he talks, I think you just assume that he served in Vietnam because of the like almost firsthand experience stuff he keeps mentioning, especially during Donnie's funeral. But I don't know if it's explicitly stated, I was in the military. What would be funniest to me is if he was like in the National Guard.
1: yeah. It that feels right. It feels like he was, you know, it feels like he was somehow marginally involved in the war as a, a cook or something, you know, and 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 has parlayed that into his entire personality and and persona.
2: Well, I knew somebody who. uh Well, I was in the army during Vietnam. Blah blah blah. Well, what did you do? Well, I was a translator in
0: Germany. Yeah. Exactly. I have a feeling you're not going to name that person for the uh, protection of their uh, integrity, but off air, I would like to know who that was.
2: Oh, I think you know
0: exactly who it was. No, I don't. I have no idea. Okay. All right. Well, I don't have anything else, so... Just want to thank you, Shane, for coming back and hope you had a good second experience with us. But let everybody know where they can find your information and your podcast.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for having me, you guys. This was fun the first time and uh, even more fun for me the second time because this movie is one that I really do love. So this was fun to get to chat about. And I am uh, one of the co-hosts of Midnight Facts for Insomniacs. As you mentioned, it's a great uh, show about random fascinating facts. And uh, it's comedic. And also you learn a lot. And I definitely recommend it. And then I do a lot of comedy. And you can go to Shanerodgers.net check out my upcoming shows. Tonight is the last show that's on there for a while. I'm intentionally going to take at least a few weeks off. Uh, but it'll start being populated again. Uh, and then as we get toward April, I know I've got a bunch of stuff coming up in April. So uh, Shane Rogers dot net and uh, midnight facts for insomniacs.
0: And we'll have links for both of those either in the show notes, the show description, or on our show page for anybody that needs to find those. Dad, any remaining thoughts for the week?
2: Not really. uh, Well, we have our bet, and uh, we're recording before the Oscars. So we'll have to see uh, what happens.
1: Yeah, this is a big weekend for you guys.
0: Yep. One step closer to you reviewing Freddie Got Fingered. Boy, I have a feeling I might
2: end up uh, having to watch that.
0: Yeah, you you went out on a limb this year in a way that allowed me to be very conservative. And I think there are a couple of spots where we're going to get stuff wrong. Just listening to people now. And I may change my ballot going into tomorrow night for uh, the pool that I'm going to be a part of. But uh, yeah, I I think I'm in a comfortable position not to uh, watch the bat nipples. Yeah, okay. So let's see here. Recommendations uh, of stuff coming up. I'll, I'll just say, as far as my remaining thought, and I know that there are a couple of shows that have come back that I've really enjoyed and that are in part of my normal repertoire, but there are four shows coming up that I have loved just about every season of that I think are exceptional shows and that are all ending that are going to be releasing or starting their final seasons in the next month. Ted Lasso starts next week on Apple TV+. You haven't been alive if you haven't at least heard the name Ted Lasso in the last three years. Succession is going to be starting its final season at the end of March here. I think a week after that, the final season of Barry is going to start, which is Bill Hader's show about a contract serial killer who decides he wants to become an actor on HBO great depth and funniness, even though it takes you to a place that almost hurts your soul. And then finally, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which has been a family favorite of ours for a couple of years now, that's going to be dropping its final season, I think, in the middle of April, the second weekend in April. And for shows that I've had multiple seasons with characters, Ted Lasso is going to be its third season, Succession its fourth, Barry its fourth, and Maisel will be its fifth. I'm just kind of a little melancholic. I know that some people really appreciate not having to spend too much time with these characters because they think they're going to end in the right place. But because I've had such reverence for all four of those shows, I'm just going to miss hanging out with some of these characters. And I know there will be shows that I rewatch. I'll probably rewatch Ted Lasso a bunch of times. I've already done it in preparation of this final season. I love Succession. I enjoyed, especially the first two seasons for me with Barry, the third one got really dark, so that one's going to be harder to revisit. I just, I'm going to miss being able to hang out with some of these characters, and so it, it's kind of got me in this phase where I'm just a little sad that I only get one more season, but maybe that'll make me appreciate the finality and the, the last pieces I get with these characters, at least new pieces uh, of my relationship to them, so appreciate things while they're here and understand that finality gives you a certain part of the appreciation of life.
1: Yeah. I definitely know where you're coming from uh, with mixed emotions about those succession in particular. I think personally, I think it's the best show of the last five years and uh, I'm sad that it's ending, but at the same time, uh, you know, we, we've seen what happens to shows once they get past their fourth, fifth, sixth season. And, you know, I don't want it to go the way of lost either. So I think they're making the right decision, but at the same time, it is bittersweet because it would be sad to see it go. I think that's a brilliant show.
0: Agreed wholeheartedly. I think the only show as far as a drama, and even then, I, I use that loosely because of how funny that show is, that could compare anywhere close to me for over the last four or five years is probably Severance, but that's only had the one season so far. So I just... Every character on that show, every main character, even the supporting characters to a degree, is just so brilliantly written and so brilliantly cast and acted. It's it's hard to fathom how well done that show is, but I agree with you. If it stays past its welcome, that'll be hard to reconcile with how great I think of it right now.
1: Yeah, I don't want them to sort of tarnish the legacy here. And, and I agree about Severance, by the way. I, I'm really interested to see where that goes. I thought it was a really cool first season.
0: But I trust the creators and specifically Jesse Armstrong. So if he thought this was the way to end the show and this is the natural fit to how you need to end it with these characters, I'll appreciate it that much more. It's just (laughs) at times. And I, I remember growing up with some of these sitcoms and as they ended, I would always have this really like drop in my stomach, but it feels sometimes like losing a member of the family, even though you'll find something else that you'll love just as much, probably six months from now. And that'll be your new thing. It's just the cycle of things that you love, I guess.
1: Yeah. Agreed. Absolutely.
0: So that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Treasure the experience dreams fade away after you wake up next week. We are discussing the second highest grossing Japanese film of all time, your name from 2016 written and directed by makoto shinkai starring mitsua miyamizu taki tachibana and miki akudera you won't want to miss that one so watch ahead of the show by searching the real good app to find where it's streaming for you that's r-e-e-l-g-o-o-d please like follow rate and review or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in in our fun you can also email the show at the new or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at GMO Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.